Okay, Genesis 18. We're going to look at part two of Genesis 18. This was a message that we did last Wednesday night. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? We looked at the story of the Lord coming and reiterating his promise to Abraham and Sarah. An incredible promise. And we're going to pick up part two of that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much again for this beautiful place that you've blessed us with, a great building, a wonderful church congregation, so many servants of the Most High God that are here serving you in different capacities, ones that are serving right now, taking care of kids and teaching teenagers and uh, pouring into the lives of uh, people at every level. Thank you for the ushers. Thank you for the guys that are uh, and gals that are back in the sound booth and help out with that. And just all the people that really make this church what it is, Lord. It's a great blessing to be part of what you're doing. We're excited about the doors that you are opening. And we just want to, again, just give you the glory and pray tonight that as we study your word, um, you would equip us further to be your servants, to trust in you, to know you better, to be indeed a friend of God, as Abraham was called in the Bible, to know you that well, Lord, that we have an intimate relationship with you. And, and as we look at the subject of judgment tonight, we look at Abraham becoming an intercessor for Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities. And we, we see an incredible picture of what's ahead and who you are and the reality that you are a holy God. You're a loving and merciful God, but you're also holy and you're a God that does pour out judgment on sin. And that's not easy to take, but it's true. And so, Lord, just help us to hear what you have to say to us tonight, to find hope, refuge, encouragement, faith, um, just all that we need tonight. So we just pray that you'd speak now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 18, look at verse 1 with me just to backtrack for a second. It says, now the Lord, Genesis 18, 1, that's the name of God, Yahweh, the existing one, appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the door, the tent door in the heat of the day. And so Abraham lifted up his eyes, look at verse 2, when he lifted up his eyes, he looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed. That's the Hebrew word shakah, the usual Hebrew word for worship. And he bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. And so uh, Abraham scurried around. You remember as we see the story unfold, he made preparations. He told everybody, get stuff ready. He went to his wife. He went to his servants. He hurried around, and the the... Uh, passers-by, the, the travelers, two angels and the Lord, as we find out in the account, uh, spent some time dining with Abraham in the tent of Abraham. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, one of the features of that particular trip, at least with the one that we went on, is you go into the tent of Abraham and you share in a meal. And it has uh, several courses. You sit on the floor in an actual physical tent. They give you pillows and uh, you get several courses of a meal. Slowly, uh, you fellowship with one another, and you meet this guy and his wife. They kind of play the role of Abraham and Sarah. It's a pretty cool uh, thing. And we hung out there in that tent for a while and enjoyed a meal. And that's something that the Lord uh, did for Abraham. He met Abraham in that beautiful uh, time of intimate fellowship. And God reiterated his promise, and Sarah, remember, was behind the tent, and she, she giggled at the promise. She laughed at it. Look at verse 14. And the Lord said, Is anything too difficult 
before the Lord, 1814, at the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, God says, and Sarah shall have a son. Now that's the promise that the Lord gave. He confronted Sarah about her laughter and she, you know, she did laugh and the Lord knew what was going on there. And then the three men arose. Look at verse 16. This is where we pick up the text now for tonight. Then the men, they're described as men here, rose up from there. So we, we take it that they appeared in human form and looked down. So now there's a transition from a leisurely meal where God reiterates the promise of a coming son. His name will be Isaac or Isaac. His name literally means laughter. He will bring joy. He will bring unexpected blessing. And then the men rose up from there and looked down. They looked south toward Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. So the meal has concluded now. They've, they've eaten together. The promise has been reiterated. And Abraham is literally walking with the Lord, much like Enoch did in chapter 5. But this is literal. This is what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to walk with the Lord. We're supposed to be in an intimate relationship with him. And this is beautifully pictured as Abraham walks with the three. The traditional site from which this occurred is a mountaintop village called Beni Naim, three miles east of Hebron, where the Dead Sea and its surrounding plains are visible through gaps in the hills. So the traditional site where this meeting took place and then they looked down is this particular village. You could look it up today. We don't know for sure, but we think it's likely that it's at least close to the site. And you look through the hills and you can see the plain and you can see the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so here's what happens now. It says, the Lord said, 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, what we know from the, the um, account here is that they're walking together. We would imagine they're in fairly close proximity. And the Lord looks to the other two. We find out in Genesis 19 that they are angels. And he says, shall I share with Abraham what I am about to do? Or shall I hide it from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, God knew that he was going to share with Abraham. And in fact, I would tell you from the account and my understanding of what's going on here, Abraham is probably overhearing what God says or what the Lord says. He's, he's in close proximity. And so he says, shall I hide it from him? No, God is not going to hide it from him. He's going to share with Abraham what he's going to do. And what God is going to do is bring judgment on, in this area. The Lord is talking. Look at verse 17. The Lord said, it's the Lord talking. And the Lord has not hidden the fact that there is a coming judgment. The scriptures say this. You might want to write down Romans 1, 18, verses 18 through 20, where it talks about that the wrath of God is revealed. It's, it's coming. Judgment is coming. In fact, the Bible, both, both Old and New Testament, is filled with passages that talk about the day of the Lord. A day of darkness, a day of gloom, not a day of light. A day when the Lord will have uh, his judgment. He will pour his judgment on an unbelieving world. In fact, the day of the Lord is captured in totality in the book of Revelation. So if you read the book of Revelation, you will see the day of the Lord. I've told you in the past, I believe the seventh seal is the day of the Lord. The seventh seal is actually talked about in chapter 6. And then it's broken in Revelation 8, 1. And then you have all these cataclysmic judgments. You have bowl judgments. You have trumpet judgments that occur. And so the wrath of God coming. 
That's what's ahead for the unbelieving world is a day of wrath. God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17. He's given evidence of this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, the Bible teaches that the one who is the judge is Jesus. Jesus is the judge. And so knowing him is the key. You've got to know the Lord. And Abraham, obviously, walking with the Lord here is a beautiful depiction of a believer walking in the footsteps of faith. But some hard news is coming, and it's news of judgment. If you hold your place in Genesis and turn to 2 Peter, Peter's addressing false teachers. So you've got to go all the way back towards the uh, back of the New Testament. 2 Peter 2. And he's giving um, examples of how God judged in the past. 2 Peter 2. Let's pick it up at verse 6. Oh, we'll go back. Let's go back to verse 5. It says, 2 Peter 2.5, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved, 2 Peter 2.5, Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, eight people got on the ark when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Not only is judgment coming in the future, but judgment has occurred in the past. I think there's over 300 flood legends in different cultures of the world. Little different variation, but all these cultures have ancient, ancient documentations of a flood. Some say a localized flood, others say a worldwide flood, where just a few people were saved through it. Now, we don't bank our faith on legend. We know the Bible tells us that there was a worldwide flood. But these other legends are interesting. There's about 300 of them in all these different cultures, all testifying to a flood, a flood of judgment that came upon the world. The Bible says that a flood did come and God saved eight persons. If you look at verse 6, 2 Peter 2. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. If you look at pictures, you might want to Google. I'll show you a few at the end of this message. Google this area and you will find that they've discovered uh, just destruction and things that are even under the Dead Sea or the Sea of Salt and this, this area that is ravaged. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them, key thought here, an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, we'll see him in a moment, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, that is Lot, even though he was in some compromise, he was still righteous, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds." Now, Lot compromised, and Lot is sitting at the gate in Sodom, which implies that he was a judge there, and yet he stayed. And the Bible tells us that his soul, his righteous soul, was tormented day after day as he looked around the city. He was in torment. He was vexed by what occurred in this place, and yet he stayed. And we know that even though the Bible does say that uh, Lot was a righteous man and he was tormented, he sacrificed his family. In fact, his wife had imbibed the culture. She could not just keep going. She looked back, and we know the story of what happened to her. And at, at uh, the end of this message, I'll, sh I'll show you something in this area that they call Lot's wife that may be her. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that up to you. But anyway, 
It says, then the Lord, verse 9, knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. That includes you and me. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment, what's your Bible say? For the day of judgment. These judgments that happen in the past become a testimony to the world. Go back to Genesis. Here's my point. This has happened before. People, unbelievers, atheists, perhaps those who are maybe uh, against uh, Christianity or the teachings of the Bible mock this idea. And I will tell you, so did the people in these cities. They didn't think it was coming. They didn't think it was going to happen. In fact, the implications of the Bible's narrative and extra biblical writings when it comes to Noah is that people were mocking Noah as he built the ark and preached to them day after day. And, and they, they didn't repent. And then the flood came, Jesus's words, and what? Took them all away. It will be just the same way when the Son of Man comes. And Jesus Christ uses the stories of Noah and Lot as examples of how it will be just before the return of Jesus Christ. So these are historical facts. Jesus believed they occurred, and if Jesus believes it, so do I. And in fact, I will tell you this, and this may not be something that you've thought about in the past, but it's the Lord that shows up in Genesis 18, and uh, the Lord's going to destroy the city in Genesis 19, and we believe that the Lord that appears in Genesis 18 is in all likelihood a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the one that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities around it, guess who that was? That was Jesus. Now you could say, yeah, the triune God, but, but we believe that the Lord was there in human form. And I showed you John 1.18 that when God appeared in these Christophanies or Theophanies, if you will, it seems to be the second person of the Trinity that's appearing, John 1.18. You can check that again. You don't have to live and die with that. But here's the point. Jesus is God and God's the one that destroyed this area. And I bring that up because people often say, well, Jesus never mentioned these types of things. He never came out and spoke against these kinds of sins that are debated in our culture. Well, I think he made a pretty emphatic statement in this region. Would you not agree? I mean, that may not be easy to hear, but I think the statement is clear. I think the ruins testify to God's opinion. Now, I will tell you this, that uh, in, back in Genesis, if you turn back there, that the, this was not the only sin in Sodom. We're gonna, I'm going to show you some other scriptures that tell us that there were other things going on. It was not just base immorality that was happening in Sodom, but of course, that was one of the main issues. Now, go back to Genesis 18, and let's pick the account up at verse 18. He says, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, this is God's promise to him, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, for I have chosen, I have known him. If you have a new King James, it's the word yada, verse 19, Genesis 18, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And one thing to keep in mind is that even this judgment will be something that's ingrained in the memory of Abraham forever, and Abraham will tell his children that God is holy. And this, this place, this region, which was more than one city that was destroyed, will be a testimony 
that Abraham will tell the story of what God did, God's faithfulness, God's promise, the son of promise, laughter and joy, his visitations, his altars. But he will also say there's another side, you guys. When people don't repent, Lot went down there and it got ugly. And I'll tell you what, it ended badly. And this is part of what we do when we give testimony to the God of the Bible. We must tell the whole story of who he is. He says, I've chosen him. I've known him. I want him to tell his children, to command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. Fathers, mothers, this is our command. It says, fathers, bring up your children in the fear and what? Admonition of the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to teach our children about God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Do you believe that? As for me and my house, anybody got the bracelet on tonight, guys? We will serve the Lord. That's a decision that we make to teach our family about God. How so? By doing righteousness, middle of 19, and justice. God is a God of righteousness and justice. In order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. As the Lord shared with the angels, it is likely that Abraham heard everything, and that was the intention of the Lord, because Abraham's going to become an intercessor, and Abraham's going to begin to plead with the Lord, and this is, I believe, what the Lord wants to occur. The Lord said, verse 20, the outcry, this describes the cry of the oppressed and the brutalized. Look at verse 20, of or against, if you have the NIV, Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and notice what the Lord says, and their sin is what? It's exceedingly grave. Now, you see the word outcry there? So I want to tell you a little bit about this Hebrew word and share with you some of the insights. This is from R. Kent Hughes. He says, The Hebrew word for outcry is used in Scripture to describe the cries of the oppressed and brutalized. It is used in Scripture to, uh, it is used for the cry of the oppressed widow or orphan in Exodus 22. The cry of the oppressed servant in Deuteronomy 24. The cries of the Israelites in Egypt, Exodus 2. Jeremiah uses it to refer to a scream of terror by an individual or city when it is attacked, Jeremiah 18. Such an outcry is the miserable wail of the oppressed and brutalized. Nahum Sarna says of the term as it's used here, they connote the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonized plea of the victim for help, in the face of some great injustice. In the Bible, these terms are suffused with poignancy and pathos, with moral outrage, soul-stirring passion. The sin of Sodom, then, is heinous moral and social corruption, an arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the sufferings of others, close quote. This is the word outcry. Now, you might ask the question, who's crying out? Are the angels crying out to God of that, the sin in that place? Are there people who have moved through the city and perhaps left that have been brutalized? Remember when the angels appear in the city and Lot bows before them and asks them to come in, they say they're going to stay in the open square. And Lot says, don't do that. He knows how bad this city is. And he wants to bring the, the angels on, into, the, into the covering of his home. This place is, is, uh, has probably left 
multitudes of victims, maybe people who are passing through. I mean, you would imagine if the men of the city crowded around the house where the angels appeared and Lot tried to bring them under the covering of his house, I wonder how many times that happened. Amen? I wonder how many times somebody passed through that city and was brutalized by the men of Sodom. Think about it. Maybe that's the outcry that was going up to heaven time and time again. Maybe passers-by were being abused by these people. And the outcry went up to God, and it went up to God. And it's a staggering thing. It can be both hopeful and alarming. God knows when people cry out. God knows when there's injustice in the world. He is not blind to it. He knows. And this is a truth that the Bible indicates over and over again. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. I wonder how many cries come to his throne per hour. I wonder how many cries come to his throne per day. You know, you don't see it. I don't see it. We're not able to be in all these places. We're not able to see behind closed doors. We're not able to see the thoughts and intents of the heart, but he does. When you're ignorant to injustice, he is not. Moy is a young man who's had a band for a while, and he used to come to our church uh, back in the day, and he said he went to this region. He went on a missions trip, and he was interacting with these two young boys. And he said both of them were blind, and here's how they became blind. Their mother, as a punishment to the two boys, poured bleach into their eyes and caused them to go blind. Both of the young men were blind in this poor, uh, terrible region where things were happening. And Moy, you know, he explained, he said, he got such a burden for the area, he began to cry out to God, and Lord, something has to be done. Something has to be done. And the Lord spoke to his heart, and the Lord said something like this to his heart. He said, do you know how long I've been watching this go on? It's good that you have a burden for this place right now, and I'm glad you do, but do you know, do you know how long I've been watching this go on? It's nice that you have a burden now. It's nice that you're up to speed, if you will. It was kind of like, he took it almost like as a rebuke. Like, yeah, you have a burden now. That's good. But I've been watching this stuff happen. I know what happened to these boys. You see, the outcry uh, regarding Sodom had come up to God. And if you look, it says Sodom and Gomorrah 20, and it says their sin. By the way, just a reminder, there is such a thing as sin. God calls things sin. We may, in our modern preacher preaching, want to remove that from our vernacular, but that is a biblical term. It is what God calls it. He says it's sin. Now, we can, if we want to play games with the terms, then, you know, it is what it is, but that's what, what God calls it. In James 5, in an interesting parallel passage, it says this, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields which, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those, James 5, 4, who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth or the Lord of hosts. That's James 5, verse 4. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And God says, but 
It's coming back to you. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man who does not resist you, but his cries are coming up to the Lord of the harvest, or the Lord, in this case, of the armies. Uh, the, the Lord of the hosts, he hears their cries. When injustice happens, he hears. He knows. He knows what you're going through tonight. You know, maybe nobody really knows what you're going through, but he does. He hears the cries of the heart. In fact, the Bible says he's close to the brokenhearted. If you turn to Psalm 34, find the Psalms. I think you'll find this encouraging. Psalm 34, which has a messianic message to it as well. Psalm 34, that is a message about the coming Messiah. But for our purposes, Psalm 34, 15. Psalm 34, 15 says... The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, Psalm 34, 15, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth, Psalm 34, 17. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Would you turn back to the book of Genesis? In Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, we get a little bit more about the sin of Sodom. It says, behold, Ezekiel 16, 49, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food and careless ease. They lived in wanton pleasures, the same ideas. First Timothy 5, 6, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. The same uh, word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. In Ezekiel 16, 49, she lived in careless ease. She did not help the poor and the needy. This is regarding Sodom. Thus they were haughty, Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. That's what the Lord says, Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. The Lord hears their cries. You might want to write in your notes, Romans 2, 4 through 6, where Paul says that people who take um, the grace of God lightly, his kindness that leads us to repentance and continue to practice habitual sin without repentance are building up wrath for the day of wrath, Romans 2, 5, and 6, so that every evil action that occurs, and I read a quote when I did this message, you might want to go back and listen to Romans 2, that message, they stack one sin upon another that God will give equitable judgment to. That is, I don't think all judgment is going to be equal. I think some people are going to pay more judgment from God based upon what they knew and how many times they sinned against the Lord. That is scary. James Montgomery Boyce comments. He says, listen, can you hear those cries in your imagination, the cries that go up to God? I think I hear the cry of a child, wretched, hurt, and terrified, being beaten by a drunken father, do you hear their cries? Listen. There is another cry. It is the cry of an old man being assaulted by a gang of tough street youth. Street youth. There's a cry of a teenage girl being raped in an abandoned car. The cry of a wife abandoned by her husband. I hear the cry of sinful pleasures. The raucous cries in thousands of bars that scar the faces of our cities. The cries of prostitutes and those who patronize them. The soft cries of drug addicts, 
the arrogant cries of those who have been able to defeat their enemies and ruin their competitors. But wait, these cries are only a fraction of those millions of cries that are rising every minute of every day from every street in every city in every village of our land. Cries that are all heard by God and felt by God, close quote. Isn't it a wonder to you it is to me when you think about all that God knows is going on and he is not yet judged. I mean, the, the, uh, the sin, the, the injustice of the Amorite had not yet been fulfilled. We were told earlier in the book of Genesis, but the, the stench of the sin of Sodom, God says, no mas, no more. It's over. Judgment day had come for that region. And that region stands as a testimony that God does not play games with sin. 21, I will go down, God says in an anthropomorphic uh, phrase, because God already knew what was happening. And uh, by the way, God didn't have to check on the city. In fact, there, when the dialogue's over, the two angels move on to the gate of Sodom and the Lord departs from Abraham and there's no record that the Lord goes down there. But he's, it does say that he would go down and see, but he already knew what was going on and the Lord's the one that rains fire and brimstone on the place, but God already knows what's going on. This is anthropomorphic terminology. You say, what does that mean? It's depicting God in human terms that we can understand. And it's probably more for the benefit of the audience and for the benefit of Abraham. He says, I will go down, just like God said he would go down and see the tower that man was building. It's almost humorous. Like, you know, look at this. This is going to reach all the way up to the stars. Maybe you'll have to move over, God. And one writer said the tower is so small, God has to leave heaven just to see if he can see it. A little humor there. But anyway... The Lord says, I'm going to check it out. And, and I think part of this is that Abraham needs to know that God's not going to just judge without having all the facts. He's going to meticulously investigate. He's going to know. And the outcry has come to God. I will go down and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, God says, I will know. I think this is more for our sake and Abraham's sake, as I mentioned, than for uh, God. God already knows he is omniscient. And so the, uh, the text is before us and Abraham, you know, there's nothing that says that God directly told Abraham, but I think the whole intention was for Abraham to hear and become an intercessor. So the Lord's patient has, patience has run out. You say, well, what does it take for the Lord's patience to run out? Go to one other passage and I'll sh I want to show you something that's both serious and hopeful. It's in Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18. So pass up the Psalms and Proverbs. Jeremiah 18. Here's a principle. It's the, the message that's being talked about is the potter. Um, Jeremiah 18. Look at verse 6. It says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 6, Can I not, Jeremiah 18, 6, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, Jeremiah 18, 7, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Jeremiah 18, 9. 
Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I promise to bless it. So now then speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm a fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. And then look at the Lord's heart. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. What's the Lord's heart? Genesis 18, even when he's on the verge of judgment, turn back. The book of Ezekiel makes it clear that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. Not one iota. He does not want to judge. That's why the Lord is patient towards us. He's not slack in his promises. Some call uh, uh, count slackness, but he's patient toward us, not wishing that any, what? Perish, but all come to repentance. That's the heart of God, and that should be our heart. But there's a time when the clock hits the alarm, when time runs out, and Sodom is right there, and Gomorrah as well. And so the men, Genesis 18, 22, if you turn back there, the men who we do find out are angels, the men turned, Genesis 18, 22, away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord, Genesis 18, 22. This is a picture of an intercessor. Uh, who will stand before the Lord in intercession? Logan was talking about prayer. What role does prayer have in the evangelism process and so forth? All of that can be a, somewhat of a mystery, but this is a verse I remember years ago, I heard Raul Reese preach on this verse and it captured my soul. And I'd like to share the whole thing with you, but here's the main verse. Write it down, Ezekiel 22, verse 30. He says, I search for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Ezekiel 22, 30. But I found no one. And Raul Reese was preaching that day on becoming a leader. The message, I'll never forget, it was called Looking for Leaders. And the Lord used that scripture to speak to my heart. And, he, and it was something like this. Michael, will you stand in the gap for this generation? Will you stand before me and plead for this generation? Will you be the man that will take your stand Become an intercessor. Become a preacher. And, you know, you get moments like that, folks. It's like, whoa. Who, me? You want me to stand in the gap? You know? But this is the essence of what Abraham does. He was still standing before the Lord. The angels had moved off, heading towards the judgment to execute the judgment. And Abraham is standing, if you will, between life and death. Standing before the Lord in the role of the intercessor, and Abraham came near to the Lord, and he said, 23, wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Question number one, request number one. Suppose, he says, there are 50 righteous within the city. Will thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing. You know, when you pray to the Lord, it's good to pray back the promises of God. We know that God is righteous. 
Abraham's faith may not be as developed as some of ours. He didn't have the whole Bible that we have. He didn't have maybe all his theology together, but he knew enough about God to know that God is just and fair. And the essence of his, of his prayer is, what if there's 50 people in there? Who's he thinking of right now? Lot. He knows Lot is down there. And by the way, Abraham has just done an expedition with the 318 trained men in his household when the four kings came and they took Lot and the people and took them up to the north and Abraham was able to win the victory and Melchizedek, the prince of Salem, remember the picture of Jesus Christ and the bread and the king of Sodom's there and he experiences this fellowship and Abraham testifies to God doing this along with Melchizedek, the king of Sodom standing right there and he makes an offer to Abraham and Abraham says no you're not going to make me wealthy I'm not going to take anything that you offered me but the king of Sodom stood there he knew that the Lord was the one behind their deliverance as a people had they learned anything from that Abraham knew some of those people and he especially knew Lot how much more do your prayers become urgent when you know people who are in trouble and you know them personally Maybe you know somebody that's on their deathbed, somebody who's running from God, inviting the discipline of God into their life. You're like, man, Lord, wake them up. Do what you have to do. What if there's 50? That's a good round number. You would think in a city like this, oh, there's got to be 50, right? 50. Think there's 50 righteous people in Corona? You think there's 50 righteous in here right now? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> anyway, what if there's 50, Lord? You won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked, will you? You won't treat them alike, far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of the earth, end of 25, deal justly? Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32.4. You can take something to the bank. Righteous and true are his judgments. In fact, it is a wonder that he is as patient as he is, as I just mentioned. With all, think of all that's going on in the U.S. right now. It's a wonder that God is as patient as he is. And Abraham is appealing to God, praying to God, much like Moses did in his intercession, thinking about the glory of God. I don't, I don't want the Egyptians to think that you took these people away just to judge them, Lord. It's about you, and, I, and I, he intercedes. He even says, blot me out of your book. Beautiful, one writer says, maybe flawed intercession, but beautiful. Abraham is wrestling with God like Jacob did later in Genesis 32, praying. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, 26, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, now behold, I ventured to speak to the Lord. Here's a good uh, reminder about prayer. Remember who you are and who you're talking to when you're praying. Some humility here. I ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. You can write down Psalm 103, 14, where the Bible says we're just dust. Suppose the 50 righteous, gotta love this, are lacking five, okay? Will thou destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. 29. And he spoke to him yet again. He's getting a little bit more bold now. He said, suppose 40 are found there. He said, I will not do it on account of the 40. And I don't know what kind of body language is going here. I don't know if the Lord's kind of indicating 
to Abraham, they're not 15, they're not 40. Suppose, right? The negotiations, the intercession continues. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. <laughs> Good way to preface a prayer. I shall speak, suppose 30 are found there. He said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I venture to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20, 32. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak. He sounds like a preacher. Only this once. I underlined that in my Bible. Famous preacher say, just one more thing. Yeah, right. Suppose 10 are found there. You may be thinking of Lot and his extended family. He said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. Wow. There's got to be 10 righteous people in the city, right? 10? Wouldn't you think there would be 10 people there? Wow. For the sake of the 10. How much the wicked owe to the righteous. For the sake of God's people, blessings have been given to the utterly undeserving and judgments have been averted from those who otherwise would have perished. He talks about blessings and then he quotes from Meyer. He writes, Ungodly men little realize how much they owe to the presence of the children of God in their midst. Long ere now had the floods of deserved wrath swept them all away, but judgment has been restrained because God could not do anything while the righteous were found amongst them. I'll let you wrestle with that theologically. The impatient servants have often asked if they, had, they should uh, not gather out the terrors. But the answer of the righteous Lord has ever been, Nay, that's why you gather up the tares, you root up the weed also with them. Ah, oh, how little the world realizes the debt it owes to, to its saints, the salt to stay, in it, to stay its corruption. And so there's an interesting dialogue here, and it's something to wrestle with theologically. It doesn't mean that the righteous are always spared from calamity and stuff, but the, the context here is God's judgment. And I think what we can take to heart is that um, we have not been appointed for wrath. And we know, we know that that's the case. So look at verse 33. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. And so Abraham intercedes with God for the people. And Lot's been a thorn in his side, but he continues to be a man of prayer. Uh, don't give up on people. You know, uh, God would have us to continue to pray for kings and those in authority, 1 Timothy 2, right? We're to continue to proclaim the gospel and um, do what God has called us to do. And so Abraham has the last word uh, with God in, in this prayer situation. Maybe he thinks to himself, surely there's got to be 10. I mean, surely lots affected that many people, right? There's got to be 10 wrong in fact, I would say to you, there's not 10 righteous men in that city. There's one. There's one. We may need to close that door behind me. <laughs> anyway, there's one righteous man in the city. Let me leave you with this question. Do you think Abraham's prayer was effective because what happened? Did, was Sodom and Gomorrah spared? No. But did Lot leave the city before the judgment came? Yes, I want to take you to Genesis 19. Look at verse uh, 22. We'll get a few more details. We'll look ahead for a second. 
Here's what the angels say to, to Lot. 19.22, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until, what? You arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. We'll get more detail about that in a second. And then look at Genesis 19.27. It says, now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God, what did he do? He remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Brandon, if you're uh, able to, would you go ahead and give us one of the pictures from this region? So in this region of the world, there are salt formations uh, around what's called the Sea of Salt, or what's some people call it the Dead Sea. The Jews call it the Sea of Salt because there is life in there, but there's all these mineral um, salt constructions around, and they look like this, and we'll show you more pictures in the, the future messages that's ahead. Brandon, go to the next one. And um, I think, is this the one that they call Lot's wife? And so you can see that one little structure there that uh, kind of strangely looks like a person. If you go on the internet, you'll get a, you can get a closer look at this particular one. But Jesus used this story as a warning, not only to his generation, but to the generation that would live before the coming of the Son of Man. And so I would just say to, this to you. I think there's a lot of great examples here. I think there's beautiful examples about God's promises. I think there's wonderful examples about that God hears the cries and even the, the unspoken whimpers of those who are going through tough times. But I think also we need to know something, that our prayers matter. That when we pray for people, God honors prayer. How all that works out is somewhat of a mystery, but Lot was spared. Lot did get out of there. And Abraham's prayer was honored by the Lord. But it also tells us that God is holy. And it's not something that we should just play around with sin and think, oh, it'll never happen. God will never do anything. He won't really judge. Well, he's already promised that a day of judgment is coming. Not something, not something that we focus a bunch of our time on. When we're in texts like this, then we look at it and we let it speak for itself. We are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you this. This is my last thing. I promise I, I'll be, final point. The wrath of God was poured upon Jesus at the cross. And if you and I are found in him, we have his righteousness to our account by faith. And the wrath of God is satisfied, appeased, propitiated in the Son of God. And if you are in him, you are forgiven. And he saves us, 1 Thessalonians, I think it's 1.10, from the wrath to come. Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. When you say saved, think about it. People say, are you saved? Say, yeah, saved. Saved from what? The wrath to come. Saved from the consequences of our sin. Do you know that's what salvation is? It means you've been saved from the judgment of God. The judgment doesn't come on you because it came on him. And this is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
and not ours alone, but also for the sins of the whole world. The forgiveness is available. And what we tell people is, if you want to be saved, trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He took the wrath for you. And if you will not come under his protection and his forgiveness, then you'll get to face God in your own quote-unquote righteousness. And I just say to you, rot's a ruck. Don't want to do that. I would say, get saved. This is the message that we preach. Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. They will get what? Have everlasting life. Would you pray with me? Lord, oh Lord, this is an incredible account. Incredibly insightful. Stirs our souls. There's so many things here, Lord, that speak to us. Um, This is not our favorite subject, no doubt, but it's real. You are a holy God. And man often thumbs his nose in your face and We know the day of the Lord is coming, but thank you, Lord, that there was a day that you set apart when the fullness of the time came. You sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And thank you that he died, that we might live. He took your wrath at the cross. He satisfied it. Um, He suffered for our sins as though he had committed them, though he was completely innocent. And he even lives now, ever lives, to intercede for his people Thank you, Lord, that you love us that much. It's an amazing love. And we want to proclaim this message from the housetops that Jesus is alive, that he saves. And Lord, I just pray that you'll help us to be busy about your business. Thank you for your patience with all of us when we fall short. Thank you for forgiveness in Jesus. We rejoice in it. With your head and heart bowed, if you've not met the Lord, man, do it now. Run to him. Run. Call upon him while he's near. It's something like this. If you're not sure you're saved tonight, something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe. Pray it out loud if it's you. Maybe you're a prodigal and you need to come back home. Pray it. Say, Lord, I give you my life right now. I repent of my sin and receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Please forgive me of my sin. Thank you that Jesus died in my place And I trust in him and him alone for my salvation. I believe he's God. I believe he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Lord, change me from the inside out. Cause me to be born again of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Lord, for this precious congregation, just bless them. Minister to their needs tonight. Strengthen them in every way that they need it. Protect them from the evil one. Grow them in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.